and I'm your brother Fireman Diesel Ogaya, and welcome to the Class War Battlefield Podcast. When I started this show in 2011, my goal was to inform, inform, inform. Obviously, the show has evolved, a lot of new topics, a lot of new thoughts, taking on metaphysics, some spirituality, hitting you with all types of things that you may have never heard of, and some that you have. It's always lively. But now I'm coming to you to ask you to help me prolong this podcast. For years, I have been producing this podcast for free on your behalf. I am now coming to you to ask you to support this work. whatever you can do, please do. And now, the definition. Definition. I believe that nearly all Americans are sensible and calm people. We do not get greatly excited nor is our peace of mind disturbed, whether we be businessmen or workers or farmers, by awesome pronouncements concerning the unconstitutionality of some of our measures of recovery and relief and reform. We are not frightened by reactionary lawyers or by political editors. All of these cries have been heard before. More than 20 years ago, when Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were attempting to correct abuses in our national life, the great Chief Justice White said this, There is great danger, it seems to me, to arise from the constant habit which prevails where anything is opposed or objected to are referring without rhyme or reason to the Constitution as a means of preventing its accomplishment, thus creating the general impression that the Constitution is but a barrier to progress, instead of being the broad highway through which alone true progress may be enjoyed. In our efforts for recovery, we have avoided on the one hand the theory that business should and must be taken over into an all-embracing government. We have avoided, on the other hand, the equally untenable theory that it is an interference with liberty to offer reasonable help when private enterprise is in need of help. The course we have followed fits the American practice of government, a practice of taking action step by step, of regulating only to meet concrete needs, a practice of courageous recognition of change. I believe with Abraham Lincoln that the legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done but cannot do at all or cannot do so well for themselves in their separate and in their individual capacities. My friends, I still believe in ideals. I am not for a return to that definition of liberty under which for many years a free people 
were being gradually regimented into the service of the privileged few. I prefer, and I am sure you prefer, that broader definition of liberty under which we are moving forward to greater freedom, to greater security for the average man than he has ever known before in the history of America. Welcome back to Carnegie.org. Today we're going to be continuing with our series, Do Politicians Practice What They Preach? In this video we're going to be looking at what is progressivism. Now, this series is brought to you by our new book, Are All Lives Equal? Why Cost-Benefit Analysis Values Rich Lives More and How Philosophy Can Fix It. Stick around to the end of the video to learn more. So, there are two definitions of progressive with respect to public policy that often get confused. One is a particular type of taxation in economics, and the other is a much more amorphous political movement. Unlike the other views here, progressivism is only very loosely associated with a set of philosophical views that may have some common threads, but often are quite dissimilar. So we'll do our best to gather together a singular set of philosophy around progressivism, but it was more of a movement and less of a philosophical ideology, and so it may be more challenging. But we'll do our best. So, before digging into the complex historical movement of progressivism, we'll define the much clearer and easier to understand version, which has specifically to do with taxation. In this case, a progressive tax is a tax where those with more wealth pay more. For example, the U.S. income tax is progressive because it makes those that have more money pay a higher percentage of that money in taxes, i.e. people who have more money are in a higher tax bracket. They pay a higher tax rate on their income. For example, people earning less than $10,000 might be required to pay only 10% of their income, while people making over a million dollars a year might pay 37% on the income above a certain amount. The more you make, the higher you are taxed. It is progressive in the sense that it makes progress. The more that you're making, the more progress your tax bracket goes up. Progressive taxes are contrasted with regressive taxes, where the poor pay more and the rich pay less. Sales taxes are often described as regressive because these take a greater percentage of the income of the poor than they do of the rich because the poor spend more of their money on essentials. Sometimes when politicians describe themselves as progressive, this is what they mean. They mean that those with the greater ability to pay should be required to pay more. In other words, they support progressive tax structures, like income taxes and more tax brackets and higher percentage taxes on the wealthy, and policies that put a greater burden to support society on those with the greatest ability to pay. However, this is not the only position that is associated with the term progressivism. In fact, there are a heterogeneous set of views that are often ascribed to progressivism, which arose out of a movement around the time of the Industrial Revolution, as society was changing in many ways. It was, in many ways, a reaction to the Gilded Age, where politics had stagnated and inequality was rising. It is hard to define specific positions that defined this very broad movement, but if we had to pick some that define it against some of the other positions found in this series, we could say that progressives are utopian, value responsibilities over rights, and support a strong executive. 
Let's take a look at what those three things mean. So progressives were often utopian in the sense that they claim people can be made better through government intervention. They argue that society can be perfected through advances in science and technology. For progressives, government intervention through education can and should improve society in big, radical ways. This is in stark contrast to the ideas of conservatism, that people and society cannot be perfected and that change should be gradual. Progressives focus on responsibilities over rights. This means that people do not have a right to free speech, but rather have a responsibility to speak in a way that supports that utopian society, that supports being a kind society. This comes out particularly with respect to business. While liberals can lean towards laissez-faire economics, saying businesses have a right to operate without government intervention. Progressives approach this from the opposite direction, arguing that businesses have responsibilities to society that a government should be able to hold them accountable to. This leads to disagreements between liberals and progressives on things like political correctness, where liberals argue for individual rights to speak and progressives argue for the responsibility to speak kindly about others. This position is in line with the strictly economic progressives that argue for higher taxes on the wealthy and lower taxes on the poor to ensure that everyone is upholding their responsibilities to society. So with these two points, you can see how progressives are in some ways both opposed to conservatives, but in the sense of being opposed to incremental change, but also opposed to liberals in the sense of focusing on responsibilities as opposed to rights. Progressives also argued for a more direct connection between voters and their representatives. This often takes the form of arguing for a stronger executive branch and weaker legislatures, so that large radical change could be imposed. This is in line with the progressive desire for societal reform and desire to reduce potential corruption and stagnation in legislatures. This is in many ways directly opposed to the Republican desire to have checks and balances in different loci of power as well as the conservative desire to enact things through slower reform. There are many other strands of progressive movements that had various outcomes and projects. One such movement was in education, supported by the philosopher John Dewey. Dewey argued for progressive reform in education, around the idea that education can be perfected and people can be improved instead of just given facts. So-called progressive education focused on providing children with tasks to do and problems to try to solve instead of asking them to memorize facts. Check out my couple videos on Dewey and uh, the Common Core for more information on John Dewey's philosophy. The Progressive Movement in this video, we will explore the progressive movement and its attempts to reform the government to remedy the injustices and problems left by rapid industrialization. The Progressive Era The Progressive Era goes from 1890 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. During this time, progressivism, a new social philosophy, flourished. Progressives believed that advances in science, economic development, and social organization were vital to the progress of humanity. The rapid industrial growth, however, had not resulted in progress for every American, but rather caused numerous social problems. Progressivism did not oppose industrialization per se, 
but believed that the government had to correct the abuses and problems generated so that Americans could enjoy better lives. Progressives challenged the ideas of social Darwinism and advocated reforms to move the government from a laissez-faire to a regulation approach to prevent or correct the worst abuses of economic power. The Social Gospel Movement Progressives often acted out of a sense of moral responsibility derived from religion. At the end of the 19th century, many Protestant pastors openly advocated for social reform, including better working conditions, better social services, and the abolition of child labor. Many groups were formed to carry out their Christian duties to help the less fortunate. The social gospel movement sought to coordinate the efforts of churches and private charities with those of the government to help people in need. Among these efforts, we have the Salvation Army and the Colorado Methodists, who established a free hospital, a night school for adults, and a summer camp for children. Another important effort within this movement was the establishment of settlement houses. Jane Addams ran a settlement house in Chicago known as Hull House. Settlement houses were typically located in the slums and immigrant ghettos and provided services to immigrants and poor people. Their basic services included childcare, nursing of the sick, English lessons, and help in obtaining U.S. citizenship through naturalization. Middle-class women were often active in campaigning for better trash collection, sewers, hospitals, and other public services. At one time, there were as many as 400 settlement houses operating in the United States. Members of the social gospel movement also promoted temperance, calling for a ban on alcoholic drinks, which they saw as one of the chief causes of many social problems. The Muckrakers One of the most influential progressives were muckrakers, journalists, writers, and social scientists that exposed the abuse and corruption of industrial society. They were called muckrakers because they raked through the muck of American life, exposing some of the most horrible problems and evils in industrial society. Their writing style appealed to the public and quickly gained readership across the nation, stimulating the public in favor of the need for reform. Some of the most famous muckrakers of the time include Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle, a novel about the lives of immigrants working in Chicago's meatpacking industry. Sinclair exposed the horrible working conditions at the plants, as well as harmful practices such as putting dead rats and rat poison in sausage meat. Even though his purpose was to denounce the terrible working conditions and abuse at these plants, the public was more concerned about the quality of the products they consumed. Ida Tarbell, who wrote A History of the Standard Oil Company, revealed how Rockefeller's celebrated success was largely based on ruthless and unethical business practices. Jacob Rias was a photojournalist and writer who published How the Other Half Lives. His pictures documented child labor and extreme poverty conditions in American cities. Other muckrakers included Lincoln Steffens, who examined corruption in city governments, 
Ray Stannard Baker, who reported on the conditions of African Americans in both the North and the South, and Frank Norris, who wrote The Octopus, a novel describing the abuses of railroad companies over California farmers. Progressive Organizations Other progressives formed associations to promote social change and professional responsibility. Some of the organizations founded during this period include the American Bar Association, which set up standards and ethic codes for the law profession, the National Women's Suffrage Association, the NAACP, or National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the Anti-Defamatory League, which opposed religious prejudice and anti-Semitism. Women Reformers Women faced many obstacles, from not being able to vote to the lack of education and career opportunities. Still, some women worked persistently as reformers. We will examine four of them. Susan B. Anthony Susan B. Anthony grew up in a Quaker family in Massachusetts. She supported abolition and the temperance movement. She is well known as a fighter for women's rights, especially women's suffrage. Her efforts included co-founding the National Women's Suffrage Association, or NWSA, and publishing a weekly journal on women's rights. Florence Kelly Florence Kelly lived in Hull Settlement House in Chicago. Kelly was an active fighter for labor rights, including the minimum wage, an eight-hour workday, and the abolishment of child labor and sweatshop conditions. Kelly became Illinois' chief factory inspector and had an important role in persuading the Supreme Court to limit women's hours in Muller v. Oregon. Carrie Chapman Catt Carrie Chapman Catt was active in Iowa's suffrage movement. She closely worked with Susan B. Anthony and succeeded her as president of the American National Women's Suffrage Association. Later, she also founded the League of Women's Voters. Alice Paul Alice Paul was a well-educated woman with both a PhD and a law degree. She traveled to England to join the suffrage movement there. Alice Paul organized many protests, including a march in Washington, D.C. before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration and picketed in front of the White House, where she was arrested in 1917. In prison, Alice went on hunger strike and had to be force-fed. Her tactics persuaded President Woodrow Wilson that an amendment to grant suffrage rights to women was necessary. Political reforms. At the municipal level, political machines were exposed and soon lost their political grip over big cities. Progressive mayors were elected and public services were expanded, especially sanitation, garbage collection, and public utilities. Progressives discouraged corruption in cities by using city commissions, which included experts on urban planning and services, as well as using city managers, which operated the city more efficiently. At the state level, progressives from both parties were elected as governors and introduced many reforms. The leading progressive governor of the time was Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin, 
but soon other states would also elect progressive governors and legislatures. Some reforms that were introduced to free state governments from corruption include the secret ballot, which allowed voters to mark their ballots in private, making them less subject to pressure or intimidation. Initiative, which allowed citizens to introduce bills into the state legislature. Referendum, which allowed voters to repeal a law already passed through a special referendum election. Recall elections, which allowed voters to recall or dismiss elected officials. Direct primaries, which allowed voters to pick their party's nominees in a special election. Direct election of senators, allowed voters the power to elect their senators. Since the Constitution had given state legislatures the power to appoint senators, the 17th Amendment was introduced and ratified changing the constitution so that the voters could elect their senators directly. Social and economic reforms. Reforms were passed to deal with the worst social and economic effects of industrialization. Laws started regulating urban housing conditions, safety and health conditions in factories, the number of hours women could work, giving compensation to injured workers, and abolishing work for young children. In 1911, there was a fire at the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory in New York City, which led to the death of 146 female workers just because doors were bolted and there were no adequate fire escapes. This event led to the passage of state laws providing for the fire safety codes for factories. The temperance movement and the women's suffrage movement would continue their efforts and eventually, in 1919, the sale of alcohol drinks was banned by the 18th Amendment. The next year, women would get the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. A storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. This freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News Hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom is precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am your brother, Vimeo Dees. Oh, God, yeah. Welcome to this Class War Battlefield Podcast episode. Oh, the failure to have an accurate vision for the country. Policy is never enough. You must have a vision for the country. 
but not just a vision for this nebulous, undefined thing called country. No. What makes a vision dynamic? What makes it practical? What makes it possible, to be honest with you? And what increases its probability of being fulfilled? is the fact that it incorporates both macro, that's big picture for those of you who don't know, and micro, little picture, components. Now, in a country, especially a country the size of the United States, which is large enough to contain several countries in Europe, and this is actually important because um, Europe's history has constructed countries with borders that are a lot more easily maintained thanks to that elongated history. The United States is a cobbled together um, colonial empire. Even the 48 states. And so, uh, most of the issues, the social issues that actually create real borders and sustainable borders over a specific period of time, that has not happened here. But I digress. When formulating a vision, you not only have the macro and the micro, but you have everything that's in between. And for a large country like the United States, with a large, robust, I would argue, not at all the size that it needs to be, federal government, because of how many people... um, this country has. The the United States federal government should be spending, and I'm not joking when I say this, for 350 million people, the federal government should be spending well over $10 trillion at this point. But you also need... So, the federal government is the macro, right? That's the large picture. That's the large institutions. You also need a vision for the towns and the counties. And you will likewise, so, you know, that's the macro. Then you will need um, visionary components for everything in between. How is this going to impact state funding apparatus, regional funding apparatus? These are all things that most ordinary folks do not give much thought to. And truthfully, if you know, I could be straight with you, I didn't give much thought to. I was trying to find this interview, and I was unable to find it, so I'm just going to reference it here 
um, in hopes that between, you know, the time when I actually published this and uh, now, I can find it. But, uh, oh man, I can't believe, like, I just completely forgot her name. Emma Viglin from the Majority Report. And I believe it was her and not Sam, but it might have been both of them. Had this really interesting, powerful, absolutely off-the-beaten-path interview on their show last year. And it was with a woman who had written a book on the evolution of the budgeting, the federal budgeting process. And she talked about how the federal budgeting process has changed in the last 60 years. How many people think, and all the changes that have taken place at the federal level, how many of you stop to think, how have these changes actually impacted the federal budgeting process? Now, when I say budgeting process, ladies and gentlemen, you might think, and I can understand why, of simply the actual federal budget. Like that tome, that book that's published, that says, this is how we're going to spend money. Sometimes this is why we're going to spend the money, but this is definitely how we're going to spend money. (laughs) Or at least the first iteration that says this is is what we would like to spend money on, and then, you know, go from there. But that is not the entire budgeting process. The budgeting process includes allocation. That's a huge part of the budgeting process. You budget for the money, you you plan for the money, and then you allocate it. Well, that last part has went under significant change or, or has had significant change occur to it. Now, to be honest, and, you know, it... it it completely escaped my mind when I was listening to um, Rick Perlstein's book. And come to think about it, it might, even, it might not even been his book, but I think it was his book, The Invisible Bridge, where they actually talked briefly about the idea of block grants and some of the other financial ways that the government used back in the 50s and 60s to allocate funds to communities and regions that disproportionately on a grand scale went to white people. Um, They didn't make that connection, but I always make that connection in the 50s and 60s because it's what actually built the suburbs. But I, I... Oh, I know exactly what what book um, it was. So they did mention it. Um, Rick Prostein mentioned it briefly. But the book So Damn Much Money, which is a phenomenal text, 
written by somebody who was in the room making the plans that ultimately changed some of the budgeting processes, especially the ones related to earmarking. Um, that's the book that this was in. Those, all of those changes, though, impacted communities, counties, regions, and state relationships to the federal government. And of course it would. Only makes sense, right? If if the parameters which money is allocated to you change it significantly, then that's going to change the nature of your relationship. This, by the way, is one of the primary reasons why and one of the major obstacles towards changing um, this whole notion of reliance on the, quote, free market when it comes to taxation has been so difficult to, to uproot. Because the budgeting process in the federal government leans towards private industry doing more. Bet you didn't know that. Now, the question that, you know, I, I really have to find this interview because I want to get this book. I was listening, like I got out the shower for work, seen that Sam Cedar Majority Report was on, hit play, heard that, you know, this woman was on talking about this. And was scooting out the door before I realized how important it was. And by the time I got home, unfortunately, um, my my computer had restarted. And I just didn't um, go back and look for it. But I'm, I'm, I got to find it. Um, a question, though, that we don't really ask, which needs to be asked. And again, she might have covered this in the book. Is why did this happen? You know, why was it that these budgeting parameters um, change? And I'm going to tell you why. Obviously, you can guess lobbyists. Yeah, but not just lobbyists. Most of the time, I think when people hear the term lobbyist. They imagine this person just saying, I want this. I want this. I want this. Or, I work for a group who wants this. Or, I work for a corporation who wants this. But have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do these people want these things? You see, there's, there's lobbying firms and lobbying organizations that spend money, significant money, that they receive from corporations to do a couple of things. One, research. 
research the things that they want changed. And two, research the things that are associated with the things that they want changed and the processes historically and otherwise. And by otherwise, I mean on an interstate level and sometimes even an international level. That then they, they, they utilize in formulating not only, you know, how they want to change things, but to what extent they want to change things. You know, how many other places are they going to have to uh, um, intervene in to change things? They literally spend millions of dollars per firm, per, per case, sometimes even per client to do this. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this. Because many of you wonder why things don't change. There is a system that's there. Everybody likes to talk about, you know, how they hate the idea of systemic racism. Everybody also, especially when it comes to the right wing, like to talk about how, like, oh, I'm, I'm big into conspiracies. I, I know these conspiracies. You, you don't know nothing. Let me let me let me try to hip y'all to something. As big a problem as systemic racism is, and trust me when I tell you it's a huge, especially cultural one. Um, when it comes to politics, in my book, in my book, the entrenched almost genetic fashion in which the thing you call lobbying is built around this system of people whose job it is to research and restructure law in U.S. statute whether at a federal or state level For the health of this country, that poses a bigger threat than any type of systemic racial problem that you can imagine. Doesn't mean that you don't solve systemic racism. Now you got to solve that. But the reason I say it poses a bigger problem is because, again, at a genetic level, this system has existed not only in the modern era, not only a hundred years ago, which it did, not only two hundred years ago, which it did, but this is a system that goes back centuries, millennia. That's why I say it's almost genetic. Now, there are 
lessons that history teaches on how to overcome it. But the lessons are frustrated by the present inconsistent understanding by the general population in this country of phrases such as communalism and social. It is funny to me you know, one of the things I've been doing recently is I've been on YouTube watching old NFL football games. And one of the reasons I like to watch the old NFL football games, and this is not to, like, spit on any modern commentators or anything, but the conversations during those old NFL football games, the 80s, the 90s, I haven't really watched any 70s yet, but maybe I will. But the commentation is just far, far above what is done today. You learn a lot. I've learned a lot about the social realities of the time. I mean, they're talking about coaches being part of fraternities. They're talking in using phrases that are... It takes some intellectualism to understand what the heck they're talking about. They're talking in in language that isn't familiar. It is. It treats the viewer like the viewer's not dumb, which is refreshing. I'm not saying that today's commentators do that, but there is definitely a difference in. You know, you can, you can actually extract information listening to those, those commentators in the 80s specifically and even in the early 90s. You can extract information about social realities. Again, um, speaking about coaches being part of fraternities lays down an exclusivity that you wouldn't think exists, but it does. Today, people um, are into giving people, giving others false hope. Oh, well, you can reach here, here, and here, and here. Yeah, well, you can reach there, there, and there, and there if you have the right connections. And those connections are usually exclusive to societies, which is why I'm telling this story. When we hear the phrase, and I remember hearing this when I was in school, always network, always network, always network. What they don't tell the poor and some people know this better than others, is that when they're talking about networks, ladies and gentlemen, they're not just talking about knowing people. There are circles, and I know you've heard this phrase, there are circles that you want to get into that are parts of networks which can send your your possibilities in your career higher than you ever thought that they could go. Higher than you ever thought they could go. Which is the point. That I'm trying to make here. We. As people not connected automatically. Not grown. Not not being birthed. 
into those networks because birthing into those networks while my father was here, my grandfather was here, that helps a lot. You'd be surprised the number of folks that I am watching in the mid-80s, the early eight, uh, or the mid-80s, the late 80s, and the early 90s, whose children are now in the NFL. The frustration by the media of the average person and their understanding of what society is, what social is, makes implementing real change at a grassroots level harder than it needs to be. And look, let's be very clear about this. Corporations know what they're doing. They're not confusing you and frustrating your understanding. Notice I keep using that phrase. Y'all know what I tell you about words. They're not frustrating your understanding by mistake, by accident. They're doing it on purpose. They don't want you to know reality. These lobbying firms, lobbying networks, these people know the law. They know the U.S. codes, which I've mentioned to you before. Most of you don't even know about the U.S. code system. But even more, there is a means of interpretation of law. And a means of interpreting integration of law that these people also know. So I was contemplating, and I'm still contemplating, it may happen, it may not. I was contemplating producing a series. It technically would be one episode, but it would have multiple parts, maybe upwards to ten parts. On the Taft-Hartley Act which is the modern standard for um, I was about to say right to work legislation, but it's, it's more complex than that. I was actually reading through the text and it was quite surprising to me how um, how much larger it was that I imagined. It kind of set the standard for post-New uh, Deal labor relationships. And it's, 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 it's a big mouthful. But, but here's the reason why I'm bringing it up. When you begin to read the Taft-Hartley Act, what you realize is there is language that is inserted in there that is designed to confuse and to obscure. And it's not hard to pinpoint. Number two, you realize that, and this is something that I, I recognized with the Patriot Act when I started reading through sections of the Patriot Act 16, 17 years ago. 
there is often references to U.S. codes, other legislation, and historical context, which usually is footnoted. In other words, there is a three-dimensional picture that is painted but you have to be able to put the time in to see the picture in order to adjust it. And these lobbying networks have the time and what we call the resources, that's financial. And some people often say, well, they also have the human resources. I never call humans resources. You know me in that word. But they have the resources to not only develop that three-dimensional picture, but to also develop a strategy to change it. I have mentioned these books before. The Heritage Foundation's uh, Mandate for Leadership, the Hoover Institution, the United States in the 1980s, and the Cato Handbook on Policy. And these are just the more publicly known uh, points of entry when it comes to not only a policy vision, but manuals for implementing that vision. There are hundreds, probably by this time period, thousands of white papers spread out amongst, you know, uh, foundations and institutes and those lobbying firms and organizations because those are the things that you don't see. Now, I want to make sort of a controversial point here that I've been mulling over over the last decade, but I do want to make it. One of the reasons, you know, and I wasn't a huge WikiLeak um, fan, but I realized one of the reasons that they, that, that not only corporations, but federal government really feared and was made to fear WikiLeaks was because there are do-gooders at every level of corporations. Every level. And most of those do-gooders have no outlet to blow whistles. Because, let's be very frank, if you treat the New York Times or the, or the Washington Post or any of these other corporate behemoth juggernauts that really are still beholding to the same corporations they're supposedly reporting on in an objective fashion, they, uh, you, 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 you know, big stories ain't going nowhere. That's why in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was the citizen investigative journalist who had standards, who broke 
tons of stories. And it was alternative papers that broke many stories. It wasn't the main guys. They were too busy being too cozy with these folks. But these corporations, these networks, these organizations, and yes, the federal government, feared WikiLeaks would spread. And if WikiLeaks spread, and there was more organizations like WikiLeaks that popped up, you would undoubtedly have the Afghanistan papers times a thousand within a decade and a half. And the stuff that would be released during that period would be so damning to the systems that are in existence to hold up the system that Lord knows what would have to be done to mitigate the problems that that created. I mean, one of the one of the other things that I've come to understand, you know, we we're living in an age where information, um, I'm sorry, intellectual property is huge, which I. I will likely do an episode on that sometime in the next year because I just find that absolutely laughable. Um, Europeans have cared nothing about intellectual property rights as they conquered the world. And now when they control so much of the avenues that information and culture are being disseminated upon, especially in what they call the, quote, developed world, which, you know, what does the word developed really mean, guys? What does that really mean? The mature democracies, they call them, too. That's been one that I haven't heard in a long time. But um, now they want to talk about intellectual property. (laughs) Sure. Anyway, um, I look at a lot of the hidden knowledge that actually describes how these things work as their intellectual property. And so, one of the reasons I believe, you know, the push for intellectual property rights has been so vicious is because these bigger corporations have the capacity to take away the right from the not-so-big people while also protecting their own. But, you know, again, for all my conservative peoples who I know out there who are like, oh, conspiracies, I know conspiracies, you know nothing. It's funny to me how you, how you really think you know. The sad part is, you could know, and considering how much you like to dig, you could really know But see, then you'd have to look at stuff objectively. And that's where the problem comes in, right? You are incapable of it because you have an agenda, a preformed agenda, which goes against you finding anything that contradicts that agenda. But I digress. Because the reality is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about the budgeting process 
is because it is really a a quintessential representation of something in the government that has changed and has been made to change deliberately by corporations under your nose so you don't even recognize that it has changed. But it has changed. There are thousands of such changes occurring in the federal government, or should I say, that have occurred over the last 50, 60 years that have gotten us to where we're at right now. Your frustration, notice I keep using that word, your frustration over the state of this society is built upon your incapacity to understand that these things have happened. You are seeing the end result. Well, why is my taxes going up higher? Why is your taxes going up higher? Well, it's because the government's greedy. No, 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 no. That's what the corporate, paid-for, inspired, or actually, I suppose it's more appropriately, the corporate, paid-for, media system that is inspired to lie to you, keeps telling you. And despite what you like to say, conservatism is everywhere around you. Name five liberal radio stations in your area, in your region. You can't do it. Hell, name three of them. Your taxes at a communal level have skyrocketed because the way that the federal government used to fund your community and the things that your community needs has changed over the last 40 years. And it was changed deliberately to shift the burden onto you instead of onto the corporations. Now, I want to talk briefly because I can already hear some of my conservative Friends yelling back at their radios. Well, why does the responsibility have to be? Because we live in a complex society, you fools. We are not living in the 14th century anymore. The society is very complex. Half of the things that you take advantage of today were publicly underwritten. And when you start talking about electronics... Oh my God, the entire infrastructure that forms the foundation of the electronics that you take advantage of. All publicly funded. Once they were developed, they were then handed to corporations. Well, why? Because you're a fool and you don't understand communism or socialism. Corporations do. They love it. Corporations use communism and socialism all the time. That's how they keep their monies right. Oh, well, because it's authoritarian. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Communism and socialism is not innately authoritarian. It is how people have utilized those things. Ask corporations. They'll tell you. You know how I know they'll tell you? 
because they hate both of them so much. But if you actually watch what they do, they actually practice socialism and communism. It's quite simple. And before you tell me that I'm, oh, you're, you're confusing the two of them because you, you have an agenda. You can go back and you can listen to the episodes that I have done one of which was in 2021, where I talked about why I wasn't calling myself a socialist anymore. Still stick to that one. And I believe it was 2018 where I talked in depth about the um, the problem with how we remember communism. Which is something that, again, you might want to go back and take a look at. Or listen to. Corporations use these things to keep themselves afloat. You the only one who's yelling nonsense that you ain't actually thought through. But let me let me get back to answering the question. The burden the reason the burden was on corporations, um, especially when it comes to taxes, is because corporations have been instituted by the state because you refuse to allow the state or to push the state to implement another economic generative organization economic generated organization or generative organization you refuse to push the state to create a primary economic generative organization that is not authoritarian so you are left with corporations as the economic generative organization because they are an economic generative organization they have the capacity to organize people to create economic activity, mostly production, but increasingly financial and digital and, you know, in other um, uh, sectors. And the resources, natural elements, from the ground, in the air, in the water towards an end of their choosing. In order to do this, or maybe should I say better, because they're sanctioned to do this, their primary motivation, which could be generative or general wealth um, creation and distribution, no, they have taken as their motive profit. And the squeezing out of the work done, I'm sorry, the employment engaged in surplus. And yes, 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 that is a Marxist concept, but it actually existed prior to Marx in some of what you might call your classical liberal and classical economic. I have quite a many books to still read on those things, but I do understand that the classical liberal and classical conservative um, economists that were prior to Marx utilized surplus 
similarly as he did. So, you know, don't get your britches in a bunch. Listen to what I'm saying, not what you want me to be saying. Okay? These structures, these corporations, are told by the state that they could do this, again, because you haven't told the state that you want them to do something else. And so what the federal government recognized was they sanctioned these organizations to do this. And these organizations were acting against the general welfare of the people who they were given reign over, who they were, they were able to force into employment. And because of that, the people who would have had the finances to, pl- to, to pay these, these higher taxes, which would fund local government, it would fund regional government, and it would fund mostly state government, These people didn't have that money because the folks at the top and in the middle of these big behemoth corporations weren't paying them what they were actually worth, which is a word you really need to look up. And so, the federal government stepped in and said, if you are just going to hoard money and you're not going to give it to the people who are actually engaged in employment and making those things that you are selling or you are um, bringing to the quote market, whatever that means, um, fine, we're going to start taxing you at a rate that is significant enough with some notable loopholes in it, by the way, to make you hurt if you're just going to hoard the money. And by the, those those notable loopholes, again, um, there were there were a couple of books that actually talked about this, and I apologize, um, I'm I'm just not recalling those books, but um, some of those notable loopholes were if you took part of that your profit and you reinvested it in building new plants um, or expanding plants or investing in new machinery or Paying your employees more. <laughs> you, got a, you, got, you got a tax break. You got a tax break for putting money, um, for paying your taxes at the higher levels um, locally and, and, and state level, you know. You had all of these tax loopholes that encouraged local, regional, and statewide um, economic activities from corporations, which you don't have anymore. You, it's, it's. <laughs> anyway, it, it, that's why your taxes have gone up because this has changed. Now, let me ask you, to my conservative friends, how many of you knew that? Any of that that I just went through? How many of you knew that? Yeah, don't worry. I didn't know it either up until a couple of years ago. 
See, the goal here, and I'm actually, I'm almost done. The goal here is not for me to, and I apologize, guys, my voice is going through something right now. The goal here is not for me to lord over you and act like I'm better than you. Because I had somebody once tell me that. Actually, I've had people tell me that a few times over my life. Oh, you, you treat me like I'm stupid. And I remember one of the last people who told me that. This was about seven, eight years ago. And I said, my intention isn't to do that. And I, I swear when I, I say that, my intention really isn't to do that. Well, it's how you say it. And I go, well, you're, yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, but here's the thing. My intention isn't to make you feel stupid. So I really do apologize if that's how it's coming off. Um, but my intention is to give you information that you need to make better decisions in your life. And I think sometimes when somebody offers constructive criticism, especially that is detailed enough to box you into a corner from whence you can't escape without seeing yourself clearer. I think that, that can elicit inferiority feelings, which makes one then interpret that as, you're making me feel stupid. You're talking to me like I'm stupid. Mm. I have had that feeling before. And typically, it comes down to that explanation. Somebody has shown me something that revealed something to me that I didn't like what it revealed. It made me feel inferior uh, inferior for a brief moment. And then that quickly is replaced by, you're talking to me like I'm stupid. No, no, you're not talking to me. Now, there are some people who do and have. And I'm like, yeah, no, you, no that ain't going to work. No, the goal with me really is to educate you. I want you to know. Because, see, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. I love knowing this information. I love discovering it. But you know something? Discovering and knowing information is garbage. To go back to my New York roots. It's garbage. If you ain't sharing it with nobody. One of the most beautiful things that I've discovered over the last decade, particularly the last decade, of searching for older books and finding just probably, I, I probably own now a hundred, uh, I can't say a hundred, that would be, that would be a low ball. I may be up to four or five hundred books from the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and it's kind of unfair to include, but I'll also include the 80s. Um, I know definitely I'm a couple of hundred pages out, or, or a couple of hundred books in to the 50s, 60s, and 70s. One of the greatest things that I've discovered, though, in those books, is the love of knowledge that is poured into a lot of those books. Now look, I don't want to act like I haven't tripped over myself mistakenly and purchased some BS books from that period of time. I have. 
uh, most of those I've gotten rid of. I I have one that I keep pretty much as a gag because it is just so blatantly, so blatantly, um, I don't even know what to call it. It is just, it's, it's a conservative book that clearly was written by white conservatives of the 1960s. And yet, it is, the person whose name is on it, and the person whose picture is on it, clear, I mean, it's just, it's, it's terrible. It's, the dude literally looks like a cartoon. The black guy who they picked for the book literally looks like a cartoon, smiling with the gap in his mouth, big cheesy smile, the, the suit that they put him in doesn't even fit correctly, it's, it, and I keep that one just as a gag, but the majority of the books that I have found, um, there is some real serious brilliance in them, and when 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 reading through them, skimping through them, you know, taking notes from, I'm not thinking like, well, I'm going to keep this for myself. No, want to share that stuff with y'all, <laughs> including with the conservatives who don't want to hear it. Not simply because, you know. It, I'm trying to change your mind. I've given up on that. I'm 40 years old. I ain't got time for that mess. And, and for those of y'all who don't know, you know, find a black friend. They'll explain to you what I just said. But, um, or maybe not. They probably won't. They'll probably look at you and be like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but I really don't. I ain't got time for that. I don't. No, nah, those of you who will get this will get it. Those of you who won't, won't. And look, will I always be right? No. No, 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 no. One of my greatest shames, one of my greatest shames is still Tulsi Gabbard. Those episodes that I produced on Tulsi Gabbard still hits me. Hits me. Um, there are some great lessons in there, though, but it still hits me. I'm like, oh, come on, dude, really? But, yeah, yeah. But, at the same time, I'm really trying to utilize this platform, which I have cultivated over the last 12 years now, 12 years of September, to teach you differently, to speak to you differently. Because like my father used to always tell me, man, you're not, you're not dumb. And that's the whole point of this. I don't believe any of you are dumb. The people who I've often talked to who are the most receptive happen to be conservative people who didn't want to believe me. But a number of them have said, you, you're too knowledgeable you know, for me to really discount you altogether. I may not agree with everything that you said, but, man, wow. <laughs> okay. And I've usually looked at them and said, well, if I had two hours to explain to you everything that I just said, trust me, you'd agree with me. 
Because the information is there. It's on my side. People, <clears throat> excuse me, again, remember, voice going through something. Um, people are smarter than they think they are. They're smarter than they've been led to believe they are. And that really is at the heart of this podcast. I don't talk to you like you're dumb or like I'm trying to mislead you. I talk to you like you aren't dumb. Now look, I also get this. There's some of y'all who just like the bull S. I get it. I get it. But... But, those aren't the people who I'm talking to. So, um, winding, <laughs> a little bit of a winding podcast today. Um, haven't recorded one of these in a moment. But, the information is still solid. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you know, you can always reach out to me. I am your brother, Brian Diesel Guy. And if you find this stuff um, helpful and valuable, guys, help help a brother out. Um, cash at me. CWB Podcast. CWB Podcast. You can also hit me on PayPal. Same thing. CWB Podcast. Um, there, I, I am thinking about doing a Tumblr or something associated with this. But I haven't made up my mind on that. You can also follow me on Facebook. I am on Facebook. Um, CWB Podcast there too. whatever you could do each month, throw it in, Um, as I've said to y'all before, my goal is between $3,000 and $10,000 a month, Um, I know it's high, but I also intend to, especially as I move towards the $6,000 and $10,000, you know, dollar per month, um, donation levels, and hopefully more, um, I'm going to take that money and spread it around, I want to, I, I've, I've started looking up, well, I really didn't have to look up, um, but I have been looking up more recently, which is, you know, something that I've actually enjoyed doing, but looking up Podcasts, groups, um, blogs who are doing great work. And, you know, I get to that six to $10,000 level a month. I'm going to take a couple of thousand dollars and break it up into like $100 donations and donate it to all of these places. So, um, which, you know, the further towards the 10000 per month I get, the more I will do. You know, I... I imagine myself doing three or four thousand at ten thousand at the ten thousand level. I'll have to look at because you know there's going to be marketing stuff that I want to do, also especially um, internet marketing. But you know, it's um, it'll depend on how fast that builds up, how fast that can scale up, and all of that. But um, I would love to be able to do three thousand plus. You know, 
and 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 distribute it to all these different podcasts and blogs and what have you uh that would be something i would love to do each month you know break it up three thousand dollars into 30 gifts and boom 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 just right down the line anyway that's that's my pitch again question comes concerns you can always reach out to me i am your brother vimeo diso gaia big up to dr obishaka Big up to the Pan-African fam. Big up to black consciousness, black conscious minds. Building a whole new world out here. To the Sunrise Group. Power to the people. Through, uh, through, 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 through. Um, free Mumia all day, every day. Big up to the elders of the struggle. Black Power Media, how y'all doing? Professional Left Podcast, Best of the Left Podcast, Jay with the exclamation points. <laughs> Obviously, I I mentioned Sam and um, Emma and Majority Report. I give y'all I give y'all some some um, free publicity, man. Because I love your work. I love your work. Status cool. Building a new new. Oh, man. They, their work on, man, status cool. Just other level, man. They're, they they go to the spots where major media outlets should be, but ma- major media outlets aren't. You know, their work in East Palestine has been ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, you might ask what it takes to Luke Bond Nation. When you know that you've seen it before. Oh, there's a whole bunch. I'll be here all day. So, anyway, guys, um, thank you for joining me today. Until the next one, peace. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs on the talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lights in the balance